Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 43rd episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast, and today is all about Windrush Day. The first ever Windrush Day was celebrated in 2018 on the 22nd of June. It is a special day to remember the first generation of people from the Caribbean who came over to the UK by invitation to help rebuild Britain after World War II. One of the ships was called Empire Windrush, with around 500 passengers from the Caribbean, and it arrived at Tilbury Docks in Essex on the 21st of June in 1948. And although people were invited by the UK government, when they arrived here to live and work, they were met with hostility, prejudice and racism. To discuss this further, I'm joined by one of the main campaigners that led to Windrush Day, Dr Patrick Vernon. Since 2010, Patrick has been leading the campaign for Windrush Day and in 2018 kick-started the campaign for an amnesty for the Windrush generation as part of the Windrush scandal, which led to a government U-turn in immigration policy and the resignation of Amber Rudd as Home Secretary. Patrick was awarded an OBE in 2012 for his work in tackling health inequalities for ethnic minority communities in Britain. In 2018, Patrick was awarded an honorary PhD by Wolverhampton University for his work on migration and history equalities. Patrick is a Claw and Winston Churchill Fellow, Fellow at Imperial War Museum and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and former Associate Fellow for the Department of History of Medicine at Warwick University. He has over 20 years senior experience working across mental health, public health, heritage and race equality and is well known in health local government and the voluntary sector. And finally, he's also the creator of the Every Generation Game Windrush edition and has been create which has been created to celebrate and commemorate the Windrush generation here in Britain. And the Windrush game allows generations young and old to share the stories of their culture and heritage. So I'm so delighted that you could be with us here today. Welcome to the show, Patrick. That's great. It's honored to be on your show, Leila. No, it's a real, I'm so, I am, we feel really lucky to have you because I, I was saying to Patrick earlier, I've actually followed Patrick in a positive way for many years online, on social media, seeing all the amazing work he's done on Windrush and raising awareness about mental health in the black community. Um, so Patrick, I've done your introduction about your background, you having been a Claw and Winston Churchill Fellow, your campaigns for Windrush Day, um, but how did you come to become so involved in this work? Uh, I think it's basically, it's my background, basically my parents, uh, they came from Jamaica, they arrived in Britain in the 50s, they were part of that Windrush generation, like with many people that came from the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, all part, you know, we, you know, we, we you know, we, Britain called and said, we want your labour, and that's what they did, and, and I suppose it's, I grew up in the Midlands, I grew up in Wolverhampton, and I've always had an interest in family history and I've done a bit of research work on my family history and my mother, mother's side and father's side. I've researched my roots from the Midlands to Jamaica and from Jamaica to Africa. So I've always had this interest around family genealogy and culture, identity and belonging. And even though when I went to university, I didn't study other, I, I, I didn't, I thought about studying history, but in the end I studied law and, um, and, and then through my work over the years, working in the voluntary public sector around mental health services, public health, race equality, 
housing, uh, etc. Um, I've always the issue of social justice has always been there. I suppose it's always been part of my DNA to try and make a difference uh, in society and uh, and community. And so, really, it's all those kind of influences, family influences, my own personal interest around social justice and equalities and the work I've done over the years which has probably shaped me to do all the things I'm doing. Yeah that's thank you Patrick and I think our backgrounds do shape us don't they they do push us in a particular direction Um, I think also there is something around um, past legacies even though we might not know them they do come to shape who we are and I always think that when I watch who do you think we are Um, and so what about the, the public service sector? So you talked about, you know, because I know you've got background in history of medicine um, and then you went on to work in mental health. How did that come about? How did you end up working in those professions? Well, I studied, I studied law. So I did a, a degree in law. I did a master's in law. Uh, and then um, then I started working in uh, in Birmingham before I moved down to London. And I was working for a community regeneration project around uh, small business development, economic regeneration, did that for a couple of years. And I moved down to London, where I then I worked for community service volunteers, where I was involved in a project uh, looking at horticultural and social enterprise. Uh, and then from that experience, I then worked from uh, in, uh, another regeneration project uh, uh, in East London, um, which helping people to get back into work, look at the whole stuff around um, employment and skills. Um, so this was like um, in the early in the 90s um, because that, um, obviously Britain was still experiencing um, the, imp- the fallout of the recession and this had a big impact on BME communities uh, in East London, particularly uh, in Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Newham, where I was working at the time. Um, and then I worked for a couple of years as a manager of a citizen's advice bureau in South London uh, because I always had an interest in the law. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to be a lawyer or not. That was always in the back of my mind. Mm. And uh, I did do my um, law side finals in the end and I passed them and I realised after doing that, I thought, no, I'm not sure if I want to be a lawyer. I'm more interested in in influencing social policy and running services. So I worked for CAB for a couple of years as a manager and then I got my, I suppose my first major corporate, my first major role was I worked for Mind. Uh, I was regional director for London and South East England. So I had a responsibility for supporting uh, over eight local mine associations in terms of, uh, in all the London boroughs. Uh, my region covered as far as Kent, Sussex and East Anglia. And so half of my time I was out on the road visiting local mind groups, supporting directors, trustees, uh, as well. And at that time when I was working for Mind, uh, it was when um, the implementation of care in the community was happening. So there was a growth in uh, um, supported housing projects. There was also an increase in um, uh, public attitudes in a negative way, sadly, at that time, mm-hmm. around mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were, because it was fueled by a number of factors. One was that um, when the government, the Conservative government, introduced care in the community, there was not enough resources and support and, pre- and preparing people 
that people were coming out of long-state institutions and being ready mm-hmm. for back in society. So that that led to a whole stuff around NIMBYism, there were lots of local campaigns around planning applications, refusing plant applications for the housing projects. And so MIND, um, as a campaign charity at the time, uh, even though my job was operational in the sense of supporting local MIND groups, I got involved eventually in some of the national campaigns uh, around the whole issue around discrimination facing people with mental health problems. And there was lots of discrimination um, um, at that time in the 90s. People were discriminated. Uh, with a, if, you had a, if you had a diagnosis, you were discriminated in, uh, in mental health services. You were discriminated in access and employment. You were discriminated in getting financial services. And people were discriminated in employment in terms of their rights. And then, I mean, then the, the disability discrimination that came to force, which obviously helped mm-hmm. in some ways, but public attitudes... Uh, and that was and that was the same time when the launch of World, World Mental Health Day was started all at the same time. So I was involved in all that stuff. And then I remember the chief exec um, of mine at the time said to me, Patrick, I want you to lead this big campaign called Creating Accepting Communities about how can we have an inquiry to look at the extent of discrimination facing people with mental health problems. So I did that alongside my job as a regional director. Uh, worked with a whole range of um, key stakeholders um, and we launched a report uh, called Creating Acceptance Communities which was about the extent of discrimination facing um, people with mental health problems and in many ways that that report and other work that mine was doing and other organisations doing in many ways was laid the foundation for the work that's been done today by Time for Change. Um, Sue Baker actually mm-hmm. was a, was actually working for Mind at the time. I was work, mm-hmm. I worked closely with Sue. She was head of press, so I worked closely with Sue on some of the work that she was doing. And in many ways, that's helped to create. And now, you know, like twenty years on, there was a high degree of acceptance of people with mental health problems. You know, you've got celebrities, politicians, old people mm-hmm. coming out and disclosing their mental health problems, and it's taken that long for that growing. Uh, acceptance. So I, I played my little bit during that time. And in many ways, that really gave me the experiences of campaigning at a national level, which I used yeah. later on in my work, campaign run, um, sort of black history, race quality and Windrush, basically. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. And just thinking about today, so I think that's a really helpful journey that you've walked us through, is that you're, at the moment, you've there's set up last week the new alliance of BAME mental health therapists and campaigners in response to COVID-19. So I just think it's quite a good time for you maybe to highlight that. And you were talking about a survey, so if you want people to get involved, I'll Go put on. it in the show notes, but it might be a good time to talk about that here. Yes, no problem at all. Um, so uh, I'm working with a whole network of organizations uh Ubele, um batan bimi voices um uh, and the whole range of organizations about eight or nine organizations unmistakables and essentially with covid19 um it, obviously we know it's had a disproportionate impact on bimi communities uh in terms of the death rates uh but also it's had an impact on mental health and well-being so from my own, from my own personal perspective um my sister's partner uh, he died of COVID about two months ago, just under two months ago. So that's had a ma- massive impact on my family, and particularly for my sister and my nephew. And uh, and it's really it's, it's struggle even now for the family. We still can't believe that he's dead. We still it's, mm-hmm. we still can't compute that he's passed away, mm-hmm. and he's only in his early fifties. And so as a result of 
of um, that experience and my experiences in being involved in mental health services and campaigning for years, uh, I realised actually there wasn't much stuff around bereavement support for BME communities. There, there has always been bereavement services and obviously you've got organisations like Cruise and other charities and you've got a whole range of therapists and counsellors who do bereavement support anyway. But in the context of COVID-19 and in the context of a national offer and in the context of the massive, I mean, there are thousands of BME families all around the country who have lost loved ones and co-workers. You know, you know, we're not talk, normally in, the, in circumstances like this, you, obviously often people die of a whole range of health issues and morbidity mm-hmm. issues, but because of the rapid nature mm-hmm. and the, and you know, and in, and the way that COVID's really ravaged the community, it's going to cause a lot of post-traumatic stress and trauma, and that's not taking account people who are in lockdown situations around social isolation, which further reinforces our experiences of discrimination in society. So, a group we've all got together, and we realised that we want to work together to try and see if we could provide an offer, a service to the community. And um, so, we've so what we've done, we've developed a survey which was which we sent out and we are trying to get feedback not from individuals by the way because there are quite a few surveys knocking around about individuals experiences of covid but this is a survey for organizations because we want to find out whether BME led organizations and mainstream organizations what are you doing or how are you supporting people with covid19 and mental health because we believe that there's a massive gap and there's an opportunity but also, we also recognise that the nature of mental health policy and services over the last 20, 30 years has not really improved fundamentally around recovery rates, around BME communities. And the danger is that COVID-19 will further reinforce the mental health inequalities that we currently experience. And we've got to change that narrative somehow. So we're encouraging people to complete the survey. We'll share the results of the survey and then we'll hopefully we can build a momentum with people joining us um, to do two things, to change services, to look at how we get better commissioning and also more importantly, how we can provide uh, people, service uh, counselling and improvement support to individuals when they are ready for that. Because after lockdown, uh, especially for those families, when they start to come to terms with the death of their loved ones and co-workers are, are trying to come to terms also, that's when people would want that support and counselling. I mean, people need it now, to be quite honest, but I think the, the, there'll be a massive increase and in need in the months to come. Yeah, I think we're going to see things because I think, like you said, people are still processing. You know, you, you, you yourself said we can't believe that someone in our family has passed away, and I think that's absolutely what's going to happen. And then when people are ready, they need to have, as you said, that culturally sensitive support there because it is different, and it's different for you know if we divide up. We're using the term BAME, but there's a huge plethora of cultures when we talk about BAME, aren't there? Uh, there is. I mean, and I feel that's quite important because I feel, you know the diversity within. I mean, obviously people hate the word BAME and all that kind of stuff. And but you know, I mean, have, but yeah. the bottom line is we're diverse people. We're diverse in age, faith, religion, sexuality, life, lived experiences, etc., migration experiences, uh, and it's making sure one size, I mean, the people say one size, we have to, one size fit all model is still strong and pervasive in most services. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've lost, and there was a time, I think, so this is the time when I was working for Mind, actually, 
around about the, uh, in the 1990s, late 1990s, there were actually there were more culturally sensitive services and culturally appropriate services in, uh, at that time compared to now. Isn't that amazing? And it's also um, really and there's upsetting. a fundamental question. Yeah, seriously. Okay. And the fundamental question, why is it that there was a business case that was made 15, 20 years ago that you need to have cultural proper services? Right now, uh, it's not as strong as it used to be. And I think this is why I think one of the factors, um, I'm working with a whole group of organisations, individuals and celebrities, demanding that there should be an independent public inquiry around the COVID deaths and BME communities. Because the only way that we're going to find out the truth is to analyse what went wrong. So there's, there's obviously things have gone wrong in terms of the, the preparation done by the government. We know that's very clear. But also it's about the historical impact. Mm-hmm. And I think what's quite what's happened from my experiences working in this field over the last 25 years in, in the public sector, the voluntary sector, um, is that there has been a massive cut in public health investment in communities over the last 10, 15 years. And that's, I think, one of the factors, not the only one, but one of the factors which has had an impact on how we have not prepared ourselves for any kind of pandemic situation. No, I I totally agree with that. And I think those shocking figures that came out, um, you know, at the end of May around how we have the worst death rate in the world, that's frightening. And yet, you know, I've heard people say, well, we are the founders of public health. So how can it be? How has this happened? You're absolutely right. The cuts, the lack of preparedness. And then, of course, people who are disadvantaged in society because of their race will be disadvantaged even further by this unpreparedness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing I forgot to mention is uh, as a result of the whole bereavement process, uh, it means that because of the social distancing policy, people are not allowed to have the right proper burial uh, and saying goodbye to their loved ones uh, when they've passed away. Uh, so, I've, um, working with Yabele, we've launched a fund called the Majonzi Fund. Uh, Majonzi is a Swahili word meaning uh, grief or deep sorrow. And the idea of that fund is after lockdown, families and co-workers and community organisations and faith groups would then want to start to properly have the, to acknowledge and commemorate those people who've died in the community as a result of COVID-19. So the idea of this fund is to give out small grants to uh, families, community groups, and commission work to celebrate people's lives. And we've raised about £15,000 in the last six weeks, which is really, uh, on GoFundMe. Uh, I hope to raise much more than that. Uh, so it'd be really great if people want to make a donation to Majonzi, M-A-J-O-N-Z-I fund. It's on GoFundMe. And that'd be great to make any contribution, no matter great or small. It's all appreciated. Thank you, Patrick. And yes, I'll absolutely include those in the show notes as well. So 22nd of June, we've got Windrush Day. Now, many people, because we haven't, it's been, because we've been talking about COVID in the news, um, and it can't be forgotten because people haven't been compensated. The scandal still goes on. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you about why, how it became to be the 22nd of June. Um, how, how did Windrush Commemoration Day come to be the 22nd of June? Okay, so... Uh, so in terms of the Empire Windrush ship which docked in Tilbury, it actually arrived uh, on the 21st of June, the night of the 21st of June. Uh, but on the 22nd of June, that's when um, people disembarked from the Empire Windrush ship. There were about over 500 passengers. 
Uh, majority of them from they came from the Caribbean, but also they were on that ship. There were people from Malta, there were people from Poland. There was a, it's actually a multicultural ship in many ways. And I've been involved in the campaign for the last eleven years for a national Windrush Day um, because um, the Windrush the Windrush generation. Uh, which my parents are part of, but also more importantly, the migration contribution to Britain, uh, which includes all Beaming families and migrant families since Second World War, has not been fully valued or recognised by this country. Uh, again, going back to COVID nineteen, the whole hand clap stuff—you clap, you know—it's you know as BME staff working at NHS and public services are dying like flies without the proper PPE. Mm. It's unlike now that the public are something to say. Oh, you know, frontline workers, we we do value you, but we've been doing that work for the last. 70 plus years without proper recognition it's not like now because we're dying that we're getting this kind of recognition so so i was aware of that years ago i mean i look at the, i look at my parents the work that they were doing my dad was working in manufacturing in the in the, in the west midlands in a very toxic racist environment uh no different to other beaming families around the country uh and you know and it's about that recognition of the contribution in nhs in public services in business and in public life and to have a national day to commemorate and to acknowledge the BME and, and the Windrush generation contribution to Britain. And that was the whole idea of 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 the, of, of, that, of that campaign. I did it on the back of a film I made. And then I remember I was approached by the Guardian newspaper to write an article, and, which I did around about 10 years ago. The, the article's still online, by the way. Uh, and I wrote this article saying that in, in America, we have Martin Luther King Day, we have Labor Day, um, celebrating multicultural America, uh, uh, etc what have we got in britain to celebrate multicultural britain we haven't got nothing at all so why that's why we need to have a national windrush day and so i started i wrote this letter uh, and i got articles guardian i got approached by a number of organizations saying patrick that's a fantastic idea let's let's run with this so i said yeah great well, let's do that so over the last several years we organized events we've had um two minute silence outside windrush square we've had early day motions um uh, uh, we've had letters in the, in the Times. We had a, on, we've had a number of online petitions uh, for call for National Windrush Day. Um, but to be quite honest, um, despite all the lobbying I was doing and campaigning for several years, um, and people said it's a nice idea, Patrick, but it won't work, you know. Um, uh, and then we had the Windrush scandal two years ago, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with the Windrush scandal that exposed Britain to the fact that, again, it was not valuing um, the Windrush generation and their children and the wider issue around immigration because the hostile environment discriminated against people of colour, all people of colour, but obviously had a, had a more of a disproportionate impact on the Windrush generation and the children uh, uh, particularly. And so in many ways, I was involved in the Windrush scandal in the sense that I, because I knew the history of the Windrush generation and I knew, because at the time when um, there were lots of articles in The Guardian, uh, particularly written by Amelia Gentleman, who I've got to know quite well of uh, as a result of the Windrush scandal, uh, other journalists, um, um, they were writing about the scandal in the context of individual cases. Uh, but I joined the dots. I saw that all these experiences were linked to the way 
the impact of hostile environment and the history of Windrush and migration. So I did a campaign basically calling for amnesty for um, the Windrush, for or actually amnesty for anyone as minors who came to Britain uh, prior to 1973. Uh, and that basically was a Windrush campaign with some key demands and deport, deportation flights, uh, compensation uh, for economic loss and hurt suffered by those people as well as the hostile environment policy and automatic citizenship status because those rights were taken away by the government as a result of successive immigration laws and the hostile environment policy. And it just went, uh, and then because of lots of things happening, there was Commonwealth held Commonwealth Head States meeting in London where um, a number of Caribbean ambassadors and Prime Ministers were raising concerns about this. Where I also worked closely with JCWI Council Welfare for Immigrants and Renamie Trust because they were supporting the Caribbean ambassadors and I worked closely with them around lobbying as well. Then you had the likes of David Lammy who was chairing the All-Party Committee on Race where he got a letter signed by a few hundred MPs raising their concerns around the hostile environment uh, and obviously the, but more importantly it was the individual narratives uh, of the victims who came on TV uh, were interviewed who talked about the impact of the hostile environment on their lives, losing their jobs, losing their pensions, being deported, threatened with deportation, being detained in these detention centres, people being refused entry on while visiting a holiday, and more importantly, deaths. So five people died in the UK, but many more outside the UK as a result of this government policy. And that forced the government to backtrack and to apologise because they assumed that the public would not be interested in this, but actually the public was interested. And what happened between April 2018 to June 2018 on social media, particularly on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, the, 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 the words... Windrush generation, Windrush scandal, hostile environment were trending every single day. Every single day, just like news coverage that we had have now, coronavirus, every single day there was a news story about Windrush between the period. And that was the first time ever that the great British public understood why we came to Britain, how we contributed to Britain, and how this government has let, let down the community. And that was one of the main factors which led to the government acknowledging that needs to, uh, needs to be a National Windrush Day. So despite many years of campaigning and lobbying, uh, which went on deaf ears, the scandal ironically helped to uh, helped to make sure that National Windrush Day was now fully was now recognised and officially started last year. And the government, on top of that, was giving out grants to. Uh, community organisations around commemoration events around Windrush Day. Uh, so it's not a public holiday. That was my original, that was my, that was yeah. my personal objective, but I knew that, would, that wouldn't happen because there have been lots of organised, lots of people arguing for public holidays for a whole range of historical dates and occasions. But the National Windrush Day is good uh, and we need to build on that, uh, to be quite honest. Yeah, th thanks so much, Patrick, for explaining that all. And, um, you know, I don't think there's been enough compensation. And I keep reading stories about how people haven't been compensated. And then I've seen things about COVID so, and how, again, the Windrush generation have suffered. So what else can be done? I mean, how can people get involved in the campaign? And what else needs to be done for people to be seen, heard, recognised and compensated? 
So, I mean, there's two things. The Windrush scandal and there's the Windrush day. So, the Windrush scandal is ongoing. As I said before, I've been heavily involved in the scandal. The government have not... There's not. I mean, they've talked about righting the wrongs, and the rights, wrongs have not been written. Uh, people have not been fully compensated. Uh, and there's a, there's, a mass, there's a massive backlog of cases. Um, I was lobbying... Um, Again, I've done various petitions on this, and I was lobbying, and I've been lobbying MPs and peers that the Home Office should not be managing the, the uh, compensation scheme because um, they, number one, they've not, they haven't shown any degree of empathy or sensitivity even now, despite the scandal towards people. If if you speak to some of the or survivors of a scandal and the experiences of trying to go through the process to get compensation, they've almost been treated like benefit scroungers. That is the mentality and attitude of the Home Office. And so, therefore, I believe that it should be managed by another government department or arm's length agency because yeah. there's a conflict of interest because the Home Office is still implementing mm-hmm, the hostile mm-hmm. environment. They're still doing deportation flights and yet mm-hmm. they're meant to be empathetic and supportive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. It just doesn't, no. does not work. Mm. So that's so we need to campaign for independent for the compensation scheme to manage elsewhere. We, we, ultimate, but ultimately, we need to end the hostile environment. It's still existing, and as you know, we've got the immigration bill government now, which further re, which further tightens and restricts the mobility of people to travel, and as and it further enshrines the hostile environment policy, which discriminates against all people of color. Mm-hmm. And we need to stop that. We need to fight for that. That's the ultimate campaign still which a lot of campaigners and migrant charities and organizations and lawyers are still fighting um uh, uh, as well thank you patrick so it's about keeping up aware joining these organizations seeing what petitions are available writing to our mps writing to our councillors Right to everyone, and also the lessons learned review. So one of the things that the government did as a result of the, of the scandal, they commissioned Wendy Williams, um, a senior kind of civil servant, who did a review of the Home Office over the last 10, 12 years and its policies around a hostile environment. She made 30 recommendations. Those recommendations need to be actually implemented by the government, and actually then we need to have an independent oversight from the Home Office to make sure they're fully implemented. It's not good the Home Office implement, implementing these recommendations. It's like marking their own homework. Then we need to have more independence again. So again, it's about how there needs to be greater transparency and public accountability, uh, which is very similar to the whole COVID-19 situation. We want answers, mm-hmm. we want accountability and transparency. Things can't be done through certain private meetings and certain conversations and where it's where the community is not invited or involved. Yeah. And if people want to get involved in Windrush Day and celebrate the contributions of the Windrush generation and migrants, what could we do given that we are in, uh, you know, to keep ourselves safe, we shouldn't really be having street parties, I don't think. Um, I'd love to have a street party and celebrate people, but given what we are where we are this year, what are the ways in which we can celebrate and commemorate people? Well, quite a few people are actually organising online events. So I'm, I'm going to be involved in a couple of these online events. So during Windrush Week, we begin on the 22nd of June, there's going to be, there's going to be quite a few events. Hackney Council are organising an online Windrush event festival. I know that there's a community organisation in Sussex doing so. I think there's going to be quite a few events online. Uh, people will be showing film clips online. There'll be Zoom talks online. Uh, I'm planning to organise an event uh 
on the 24th of June to explore the history of the Windrush ship uh, because I'm launching a campaign with others that we should try and retrieve some aspects of the Windrush ship uh, as part of British history um, because the ship itself is at the mm-hmm. bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and mm-hmm. we want to get the anchors from the ship. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working on a, to organise a consultation event uh, in June so people can have a conversation about that. So there'll be lots of things online, to be quite honest, uh, that will be taking place during Windrush Week. And do you are you going to ask people to take any photos? Maybe people are going to do some cooking. Are there any? Is there like a hashtag that people can use to do this to show their celebrations at home? Well, um, I mean, uh, sure, yeah. I mean, people can hashtag Windrush Day 2020 or Windrush Day, Brilliant. Windrush Generation, uh, uh, celebrating Margaret contribution. So yeah, so whatever people want to do as well uh i think that's important and also in the and also because of what's happened with COVID 19 a lot of the Windrush generation and as you know a lot of uh, migrant communities have died as a result of uh COVID 19 and so we have to acknowledge that actually it's a bit it's a bit of a mixture it's not quite a celebration i wouldn't use the word celebration because we're still fighting for justice for the Windrush yeah. Generation around scandal. People from the Windrush Generation and migrant communities have died because of COVID-19. And so I think it's, it's an opportunity for this country to really reflect on our contribution and value us much more. Clapping on a, on a Thursday evening doesn't do it yeah. anymore. Yeah, no, I understand that. And, and you're right, and I don't mean to be glib about it, but I just wonder whether... You know, you had any thoughts about, I appreciate that it's more about reflection than celebration, but if there are things that people wanted to do, a kind of sensitive, appropriate way to do that. Yeah, I mean, the government have given out grants to a number of community groups and local authorities, so I think they'll be organising, there'll be quite a few online events which people are are currently organising for Windrush Day uh, as well. So uh, the other thing that I've done is I've launched a schools competition um, to support Windrush Day, a Black History Month, uh, which is about, um, it's it's linked to a book that is coming out in September. I'm working with a colleague of mine, Dr Dr. Angelina Osborne, called 100 Great Black Britons. And so, again, it's using that opportunity for young people and the schools to uh, learn about Windrush and migration history. Because unfortunately, Windrush and migration history is not part of the national curriculum. So we need more work to do on that, you know, for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope it will go back on the curriculum. I hope it will be on the curriculum because, like you said, it's not. It is is British history. and if so, people want to know more about you and your work, Patrick, and they want to follow you like I have done for many years, um, <laughs> what, do you, what? how would you suggest they do that? And I'll include all your contact details in the show notes. Sure. So people can go onto my website, uh, my personal website, which is www.patrickvernon.org.uk. You'll see all what I'm, my activities, what I'm up to, articles I've written, the campaigns I'm involved in, stuff like that. Uh, I'm on Twitter, so... Uh, Patrick Vernon or PP Vernon has, um, on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. So I'm on all the kind of main social media platforms. And if people want to get hold of me, they can go to my website and they can email me via the website as well. Brilliant. And and any last sort of quote or anything that you want to share with listeners before we finish today? So a quote, a poem, a phrase, a saying, anything at all before we finish. Oh, good question. Um, mm-hmm. A quote or uh, well, no, I suppose the only thing just to say uh, is um, that I think the COVID nineteen uh, winner scandal 
and also Grim, and Grimfell mm-hmm. of these scand- all these circumstances, all these issues over the last five years highlights why we need to fight and campaign for social justice and race equality. And there's anyone who's listened to this podcast, have a passion for change, get involved. Don't just watch it on the news do a tweet about it. If you feel passionately in terms of your community, where you live, your community of interest, just get involved. Thank you so much. I think that's such a a lovely note to end the show on. So everyone, there's lots of amazing ideas for how you can get involved, how you can find out more. If you don't know enough and you want to educate yourself, do have a look up for online events. Patrick shared his details. And so I want to wish everyone a very reflective and also, you know, a different kind of celebratory week for Windrush Day and Windrush Week. Um, And I'll catch you on the next episode where we'll be talking more about mental health and inclusion. Thank you, Patrick. No problem at all. Thank you, Leila. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.